this is a great time to be in the field. You know, there's, there's a huge number of companies that do get it. There's even more companies that don't, but we don't have to worry about them. Uh, you know, there's opportunities for people to be chief analytics officers, chief data officers. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that'll encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is an international technology executive with over three decades of experience in the business intelligence and advanced analytics fields. He has experience building startup organizations from the ground up and has re-engineered business units of Fortune 500 firms to enable them to reach their full potential. His technology leadership expertise and experience spans all operational areas with a focus on strategy, product innovation, growth, and efficient execution. He's also co-authored the best-selling book, Analytics, How to Win with Intelligence, which debuted on Amazon as the number one new book in analytics in 2017. His books serve as guides for non-technical executives and provide a roadmap for the journey of building analytics teams, funding initiatives, and driving change in business operations through data and applied analytical applications. So please help me welcoming our guest today, author of Building Analytics Teams, Harnessing Analytics and Artificial Intelligence for Business Improvement, John K. Thompson. John, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on to the show today. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for inviting me, Harpreet. So happy to be here. Thank you for that great introduction. I'm, I'm humbled. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. I'm actually honored to be able to speak with you and talk to you about building analytics teams as we were talking before the show. I'm in, in the exact same situation that you um, kind of describe in your book, in a sense. And um, this, is, this is, again, an honor for me. So let's go ahead and get into this. So you know, a lot of up-and-coming data scientists or, or even organizations that are new to data science, they think that doing data science is as simple as just getting the data and doing the science. But uh, obviously, it's not that easy, is it? And you have a great framework that I'm hoping you can walk us through, and it's the general data science process. Uh, would you be able to walk us through that, please? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very interesting topic. It's a timely topic. A lot of companies want to get involved in data science right now, and and there's a number of companies that are you know they don't really know the guts of it. You know, they they think they do. They they know there's data and they know there's science, 
involved in it. And, and that's where it often drops off. And that's part of the reason why I wrote my first book, uh, because as I was flying around the world for Dell, I was, I'd been doing it for about three years. I'd been meeting with non-technical C-level executives, and I could really see that there was some uh, real reticence in them about trying to understand analytics. I knew that they had McKinsey and Bain and other consultants coming in and talking to them about analytics. Their teams were telling them they had to invest in analytics. So that's really what the first book was about. It was a, a primer. The idea was you get on a plane in O'Hare, since I live in Chicago, and fly to London, and you could read the book on the flight. And at the end of it, then you had an idea of who you should hire, how much you should invest, what you should expect from that team, what you should not expect from that team. So that was really, you know, to get executives into it. Now, you know, to get back to your original question is, you know, what, what, how do you do data science is really what you're asking. And, you know, it's one of those things that, that often, you know, you're in a situation where you've been hired in an organization and you're starting to think about building a a center of excellence. That's a great way to start. Uh, I encourage people to, you know, really step back and think about what they want to do with data and data science. You know, what are you really trying to understand? Are you trying to trying to do pure research and, and look for things that are five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years out? True innovations and inventions. Are you trying to do incremental improvements? Are you, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to get another one percent out of your factory or supply chain or whatever it is? So, you know, really try to understand the time frame you're working in. But then one thing that I often ask people about is what's the data universe that you, you're thinking about operating in? And nine times out of 10, people will list, uh, you know, transactional systems running through SAP, manufacturing systems, uh, e-commerce environments, personalization information. And I, and I often ask them and to, to take a step back and think about the external data that's out there. You know, what are the external pieces of information you want to use? So really get your mind around, you know, the universe of data you can use internally, externally, primary research you might want to create yourself. And once you understand your time frame, your data universe, then you can start looking at use cases and personalities and personas that you want to serve in your, in your business. Then once you understand the time frame, the data, the people you want to serve, then you can start thinking about how it's going to look operationally. One thing that I often find from people who are executives and senior managers and direct you know, frontline managers is they don't think about the ongoing nature of data science. One of the things that we often do is that we build, we build models. We build you know, problem-solving models. We build linear models. We build predictive models. We build all sorts of models. But often people who are not data scientists don't understand that just because you built a model, that's just the beginning of it. You know, you need to understand how's that going to impact my business? Is it going to go into production? Is it going to go and be part of a new system that's running continuously in my business? But then the other thing that that is often new and and thought provoking for them is that that model is going to degrade. You know, we as data scientists understand data drift and model drift very well, but most people outside the field don't. So they say, what, you know, I built, I I hired these people, they built a model, Um, that should be the end of it. It should work, you know, into the future and forever. And as we know, they don't. So you have to have teams that manage and monitor and, and update those models and take them out of production, put them in production. And usually by the time I get people thinking about those things, then they've 
they raise their hand and say, whoa, 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 that's enough for this conversation. Let me marinate in what you've said and think about it and then I'll come back and we'll talk more. What's up, artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to theartistsofdatascience at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show. And let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting. And you can register by going to bitly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode that's very interesting point to make is because most software development teams you know i'm simplifying it here but they develop a feature part of an application and that application does one thing or that feature does one thing and it just does that and not much changes. But when we're building predictive models, you know, machine learning models, we're trying to model reality in a sense, right? We're trying to model the real world and the real world changes and data coming into the model is going to change, right? So it's a whole new set of challenges. Um, thank you for, for digging into that. Um, I want to get more into, into that topic later, but I like this this kind of I felt like there was almost a little bit of a theme going on through your book about the two different approaches for a data science team. You've got your artisanal versus your factory team. Can you talk to us about these two different uh, philosophies, I guess, for lack of a better word? For, for Yeah, I, exactly. I, I think about things usually in polarities. You know, uh, you've got your artisanal team or, or you know, artisan team, and you've got your modular or your factory approach. And, and it really comes down to, you know, as an organization, what can, what can you do? How, how does this fit with the culture that you work in? Uh, personally, I resonate really well with the artisan model, the artisanal model. Um, I like to hire people who are highly educated, highly competent, uh, multifaceted in their approach to data science. You know, those, those people are expensive. They're hard to find, but they're very, very talented. So, you know, an artisan data scientist, you know, has all the responsibilities for a project. They write the charter. They talk to the subject matter experts. They engage with the executives. They obtain the data. They integrate the data. They do feature engineering. Uh, you know, they try out all the different models. They, you know, actually test and produce and then present to the, the stakeholders. And then eventually they work with IT and the subject matter experts to get models in production. That's a really, I like that way of doing data science. It's a very craft oriented. You can almost think of like making craft beer or something like that. You know, every batch, every model is a little different. Um, you know, on the factory side of it, this is more along the lines of, you know, you're really just interested in getting it done. Uh, you know, you're going to hire, instead of hiring three to 10 people in an artist artisanal team or artisan team, you're probably going to hire 30 or 20, you know, on the factory side of it. And you're going to hire people that do data acquisition and data integration and feature engineering and modeling. And, and it's going to run like a factory. You know, the data is going to come in, these people do their jobs, they hand it off, these people do their jobs, they hand it off, they do their jobs, and, and it just runs like that. And, 
depending on scale, of course, and, and how many people you hire, people often ask, well, it sounds like the uh, artisanal team is more expensive than the factory approach, or sometimes people say it vice versa. And in the end, they almost cost exactly the same. Because if you're hiring seven of these people who are really expensive and 15 of these people who are less expensive, you know, it's really a wash on the cost. So that's why I say it really comes down to how do, you know, how do your executives and managers and organization, how do they like to be interfaced with? You know, do they just want, you know, hey, here's the problem. Let's work on it. Let's get on it. Or do they really want someone to engage with them deeply and listen to their problems, listen to what's going on in the supply chain or the factory or, you know, where, whatever it happens to be. And, you know, in the, the artisan approach, often people will go in and say, well, we're here to look at price performance. You know, how much, how, how much can we discount or, you know, what does the price look like? And then in the end, what they really end up doing is opening up the aperture and working on the problem in a more holistic basis. You know, the end users may say something along the lines of, you know, our distribution is just not as efficient as we'd like it to be. Well, you find out that your product mix is probably not as, as good as it could be. And that leads into your manufacturing operations are probably not as optimally, uh, you know, is, is not modeled well and you get back into raw materials. So you end up with, in an artisanal approach or an artist approach, you almost end up in, you know, solving more and more problems than you do in the factory side of it. But either works, either works very well. As a craft beer connoisseur myself, I love that uh, reference there. And as you could tell, like the name of my podcast is The Artists of Data Science. So I very much take that uh, artisanal approach as well with myself. And I feel like the the data scientists who are listening to my show, they're a special breed of data scientists. These are the ones that are definitely for sure going on to become chief analytics officer, chief data officer. So these are definitely that that type of data science, that data scientists that you mentioned that take more of that artisanal approach. But it almost sounds like this is something that should be, is, is this artisanal or factory model like does this get decided before you hire your first data scientist or is it a consequence of hiring your first data scientist? Well, I, I like to think that things are, are more planned than they are just by chance. So I think that you, you make a conscious decision. I'm going to hire for a artisan data science team and I'm going to look for these kind of people. You know, you'll be looking for someone with five, seven, 10 years of experience. Uh, you know, if you're, if, you know, if you're actually hiring for a factory model, you're probably looking for people with one or two years of experience and, and that's fine. It's just a different profile. That's all. But I do think you go into it with a very specific, you know, desire that's how I'm going to do it or that's how we're going to do it and more than likely you know if you are a chief analytics officer or someone who's coming in and building uh, you know a data science function you had to have conversations with the organization about how you were going to do it so more than likely you've explained that this is your approach this is your model this is the investment portfolio you need and this is how long it's going to take to build the team so you've already set the course well before you hired anyone. Is data science an art or a science? How do you view it? Oh, it's definitely a, an art. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, you, you, the name of your podcast, you know, you know, kind of leads, leads us in that direction. But, you know, as you know, you've read the book, you looked at the book that, you know, my, I hold out and I believe this very strongly that data science is a creative endeavor. It is an artistic endeavor. 
And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen historically some of the failures we've seen. Uh, you laid it out very clearly. You know, I've run a lot of development teams. I'm sure you've run development teams and, and you know, you get a feature specification. I want this piece of data to be put in this form and written to this database. Pretty straightforward, you know. You get a, you know, an effort, uh, you know, estimation that's going to take three days or whatever and you do it. Um, you know, data science is not like that. You know, someone comes in and says, I want to understand the price elasticity across the entire customer base for, you know, these kind of products with this kind of competition in this kind of market space. That's not the same question. That's not the same development effort. That's going in and finding the data, you know, figuring out the modeling, figuring out how to do it. You know, price elasticity, we all know pretty well. That's, that's well-worn. But if you're doing some kind of predictive model, that takes some creative effort and, and some creative juices and it, and it takes an iterative process. You know, you may go into it and say, I'm really going to try something different. I'm going to go out and, and try some of this external data I haven't ever used before. Hey, maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe you fall back to a tried and true methodology. But I tell people it's, you know, it's not the same. You laid it out very well. It's not the same as just developing a feature that executes the same way each and every time. It's a very creative endeavor. Absolutely love that in your book that you repeatedly mentioned that throughout. I was like, oh man, this guy's speaking my language. Because I also view data science as a art. And it's because different data scientists may approach a particular problem in a different way, right? That's the creative aspect of it. Like the way I approach a problem is going to be different than the way data scientists be approaches a problem. Mm -hmm. But I think the science aspect comes down to the fact that, okay, if I do approach it in this particular way and I lay out this methodology using the scientific method, then what I do should be re repeatable by data scientist B, right? We may approach it differently, but the way I do it, it should be repeatable by somebody else. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. You know, the, 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 the data, data science is a process, as we talked about. You know, in, in the beginning of the process, we, most of us do exploratory data analysis. We just try to figure out, you know, you know how does this work and what's the world, what's the world really look like? How's that happening? Uh, you know, we do a little EDA, exploratory data analysis. Then we get in the creative part. You know, we try to figure out, you know, is this something I can do a neural, use a neural network for, or is this a decision tree? Is this a classification problem? Is this clustering? You know what, you know, you try all sorts of different things in there and, and you come out and say, well, you know, I thought I could do this, but it didn't really work. You know, there were too much of this or too little of that. Uh, that's the fun creative part. Then, you know, you get down to it. And then as a team, you can all get together and have, you know, really interesting creative dialogue. Well, why did you do that? Why did you trim the tree this way? And why did you prune this? And, you know, you can really have some interesting conversation. I think that's a very creative part of the process too. But once, you're, once you've decided the model, you've got the models trained, you've put it into production, the creative part of it goes away then it becomes a very mechanistic process. You know, if you've, if you've listened to me, you know, do any kind of conversations about, you know, development and training and testing of models versus models going into production, this is very creative and can take time and can be variable. This has no variability in it whatsoever. You know, if, if you're, if you have a model in uh, a financial, let's say a financial company, you know, uh, their, their systems, there can be no creativity at that point. You know, you train the model, you test the model, you make sure the model is ready. When that model in production starts to stray, 
and, and breaks tolerances, that model comes out and a new model goes in. That's why I say that you need to have a buffer between the data scientists and the production environments because this is too squishy to live in this environment. So you put, you know, translators or buffers or whatever you have in there and you keep those worlds a little separate. They're complementary, but if they're butted up against each other directly, there's a lot of friction. Have you read the book Loon Shots by Safi Bacall? No, but I've heard it. I've heard it. I think you really, really enjoyed that. So in, in that book, he lays out um, the, it's a framework called the uh, Bush Veil Rules, uh, Van, Vanderbilt Bush and then I forgot the other guy's oh, name. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, um, there's a there's a beautiful um, statue of Vanderbilt Bush in Lincoln Park. Ah, nice. I never saw that one, huh? Um, anyways, uh, so there was a a concept he has in there called phase separation. You want to separate your artists from your soldiers, right? And in this way, your soldiers are the, you know, they're, they're the guys that keep the bills paid. There's the, they're the people that are keeping the wheels moving. They're the frontline kind of people. So they're, in this case, it would be like the software developers and the software engineers, right? That would be your soldiers. And then the artists are your, your data scientists. That's right. Um, That's right. And it's, it's important to keep them separate, but then keep the flow of information open between them two, right? Right. Exactly. Absolutely true. You know, if you're working in a highly regulated industry like pharmaceuticals or financial products or, you know, anything that's highly regulated, you know, you, you know that those systems have to run within, you know, the tolerances of compliance and regulations and all those kind of things. So you need, you need people who are very process oriented, very, you know, by the book, uh, you know, Everything, everything is, is, needs to be buttoned up and, and working in a very prescribed way. Data scientists, you know, generally don't thrive in that kind of environment. You know, they want to have, a, they want to have a, you know, free reign, you know, if you could give it to them. Uh, you know, they'd like to have some leeway to, to make some decisions on what's going to get the best model for the environment, the data, the problem, you know, the different constraints that you're working within. And they, they do sit in rooms and, and work together quite nicely, but you need to make sure that both are nurtured and, and have their, their supporting environments. And those environments are quite different. I definitely think you're going to love that book. Uh, check <laughs> it out. Yeah, check it out. Check it out. That's an interesting point because I could spend – a significant amount of time of my, you know, it could be a week, two weeks, just deep in thought, deep in research, having nothing really productive come from it, except just notes and, and research, right? And from a executive perspective, they're like, oh, what am I wasting my money on you for just being an egghead, doing notes and stuff, right? How do we, how do we manage that expectation? Like, all right, look, man, like I, I am deep in the books, trying to find a solution for this problem. Um, yeah. I mean, am I making sense? Like you are, you are, I know exactly (laughs) what you're talking about. I was just letting you play it out. Uh, You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, being in a, you know, a creative environment in an enterprise operation, enterprise class operation, you know, there is pressure on everybody in those organizations to perform. And, and there is pressure on data scientists to perform as well. And, and I make sure that, you know, when I'm starting a new, new endeavor, uh, you know, that we pick projects that we know we're going to be successful at. You know, you don't want to come out of the gate and, and swing and a miss on one, two, three, four projects. That's not a good look. 
and the organization will judge you for it, whether that's right or wrong. That's the way it will work. Um, so, you know, when we start out, when I start out with my new team, you know, and people come to us and there's all sorts of projects, as you know, you're in a new organization, fairly new organizations, lots of people that want you to do work for them. But you look at it with a very critical eye and you say, you know what, I know I can solve this pricing optimization problem. We have the data, we have the, the systems, we have the people, the data scientists have done it before. You know, that, that's a clear win, we're gonna do that. And we can do that when, when in three months. You know, that, and that's a time frame when, with the organization can absorb and, and understand and accept. You know, if you come out of the gate and say, I'm going to take on this, you know, optimization or simulation problem, it's going to take me a year to get it done and there's a 50% chance I'll fail. Not a good bet. Don't do that. You know, go for some projects you can knock out in a few weeks or a couple months or at the most four to five months. You know, and then be ready to stand up in front of the organization and explain exactly what you did and how you did it and how it's going to be better for the organization. So, yeah, we'd all like to, you know, sit around and cogitate and think and marinate in our thoughts, but we got to deliver to. Yeah, this interesting section in your book talking about good ideas versus bad ideas. Can you help us understand what is a good idea? What is a bad idea? What separates the two? Yeah, that's, that's actually a good segue from what we were just talking about. You know, good ideas are generally, you know, something that you have the data for. You understand that you know you can solve and the organization finds it strategic and necessary. You know, usually if you've got those four characteristics, it's going to be a win. There's, there's no doubt about it. One of the conversations, one of the things I've done at CSL is I've made it very clear to the entire organization that my door, now my Zoom room or my phone or Teams messages or whatever are, are wide open. You know, anybody can talk to me anytime about anything. And I also have made it very clear that I don't want people thinking a lot about these ideas. You know, because if they sit and think about it a lot, they sand off a lot of the rough edges. And we in data science like rough edges. You know, statisticians want to throw out all the outliers and get it down to a nice, you know, tight bundle of data. We like all the noise. Leave it all in. You know, don't think too much about it. So, you know, I have people come and show up at my doorstep all the time and say, I got an idea. And I'm like, great, let's hear it, you know. So, usually a bad idea is one that you don't have any data for. You know, you can't model it. There's nothing in the real world that describes it from a data perspective. And I've said it many times. You've probably heard me say it before. You know, we are data scientists. We are not magicians. You know, we can't just make stuff up. You know, we have to have something to work with. So that's number one. So a bad idea is something that you don't have any data to work from. That's, that's not good. Another, you know, bad idea is something that no one cares about. You know, maybe someone comes to you and they have a pet project. They're interested in trying to understand, you know, the the reason that the two percent sales that to you know the the native Canadian or the indigenous population is not going up. I can guarantee you that the CEO doesn't really care too much about a population that buys two percent of the product. You know, they want you to work on something that's probably going to impact 50, 60, 80, 90 percent of the product sales. Not that indigenous sales are not important. That's, that's probably a very important segment. And those people are probably very important in using those products. But, you know, you want to work on something that you've got data for, that you can understand, and it's strategic. So if you don't hit those notes, 
or if those are the notes that you have in a project, you know, you can easily say to someone who's come to you, you know, it's a very interesting project and I can see why you're passionate about it, but it's not something we're going to invest in. And, and often those kind of problems are actually solved and addressed quite nicely with business intelligence. You know, you can send them to a group that'll write a report or a dashboard or something that'll show them some really simple metrics and KPIs that they can say, yeah, you're right. It's exactly what I thought. And there's nothing I can do about it, but at least I understand it better now. What about those situations where maybe we have the right data for it and the problem statement on the surface looks good and this asking for a friend here, uh, (laughs) they... It it just racking our brains, trying every possible way we can to get get a decent solution, but nothing seems to be working. Yeah, there are those, you know, and and it's probably a situation where, you know, either the the data isn't rich enough, it doesn't have enough variability in it, uh, or it doesn't describe the phenomena as well as you'd think it does, or maybe you're trying to apply, you know, some kind of uh, you know technique that doesn't really apply for the data. You know, so it's usually a data or a math problem uh, right out of the gate. So, you know, what we do in that area is we have uh, our center of excellence operates on, we have weekly meetings. Everybody attends the weekly meetings and everybody shows their top project, whatever they're most focused on at the time. Data scientists have multiple projects, but, you know, and they really, they do code reviews. They show results. They talk about their stakeholder uh, management engagement issues they might be having. And everybody has a chance to give them input and creative ideas about what would improve the project. So it's, you know, it's always better to have more minds working on it. If, if you only have one person, that's kind of tough. Maybe, uh, you know, you can get some buddies around or some people together and, you know, a Zoom call or a Teams meeting and start beating it up. But generally, uh, you know, it's the setup of the project is not exactly right. You talk about this concept of the uh, open mindset versus the fixed mindset. I really like that. I'm, I'm huge fan of the work that Carol Dweck did with the growth mindset. And Mm -hmm. I saw the parallels in there. Uh, Just for our audience, I was wondering if you can define these two concepts first, the open mindset, the fixed mindset, Uh, maybe talk about what they are and and how are they different? Sure. An open mindset is really, in my opinion, is is often characterized and exhibited by a, a voracious curiosity. Uh, You know, people ask me, why do you like being in analytics? It's one of the only careers where I could, you know, when I was working at Dell, be talking to someone about, you know, the flow of oil through a mayonnaise factory in the morning and in the afternoon, talking to a bank about credit risk. You know, I'm intensely curious about everything. I love, I watched the, you know, the SpaceX launch last night. I love, you know, everything in the world and out of the world too. I, I just want to learn about everything I possibly can. So I think that's an open mindset. That's a curiosity-based view of the world. Uh, you know, and there's always more to learn. There's always more to do. Uh, another thing that people have asked me more than once is, when are we going to be done? And the answer is, we're never going to be done. You know, this is math and data. Math always gets better. It always grows. It combines and goes in different directions. There's always more data. There's always new data to, to integrate and work on. So, you know, I, I, I am enthralled and, and engaged and, and excited that 
this doesn't end. You know, there is no end. You know, when we get to the best solution we know today, we start working on what will be the best solution we can do next week or a month from now. So I think that's an open mindset. That's a character piece and an open mindset. Uh, I've often seen people through my career and they generally don't do very well in data science, you know, that, that they think they know everything and they think they know how to approach every problem. And they think that, you know, you know, like what was it? Thomas Watson from IBM says, yes, the global uh, market for computers is seven. Um, you know, it's, that's just not the way the world works. We've seen it over and over and over again. It just, there's more and more and more to learn and do. Uh, you know, we recently had someone on our data science team that left us uh, a few months ago. Uh, they just couldn't work with that. You know, everything had to be six or seven or 10 or nine. You know, it was the world needed to be very cut and dried and, and they needed to know that they were the smartest person in the room. And that's a tough environment to try to be in in the data science field because, you know, I'm a pretty smart guy, but, you know, most of the time I can guarantee you at every team meeting we have, I'm the dumbest person in the room. Uh, you know, I hire for raw intelligence and curiosity. So I think that's, I think that sums up what I think about a, a, a open mindset versus a fixed mindset. Thank you very much for sharing that. I really, really appreciated that. And I really enjoyed seeing that section in the book as well. I think, you're 100% spot on right about that. You have to be very comfortable dealing with ambiguity as a data scientist. I, you know, I mentee a lot of up and coming data scientists as part of data science dream job. We've got like 2,600 something mentees. And one of the questions I always get is what's the best way to do this? What's the best way to do that? Or what's the best, like they want, they want nice maps, right? Seth Godin talks about this very nicely um, in his book, Lynchpin. And, he says that people who are artists, who are have artist-type careers, are need to be very comfortable working with a compass and not a step-by-step -step map. Mm. I think if you want to be successful as a data scientist, you better start getting to use that compass uh, because there's not going to be a map telling you exactly what to do and what to do, right? Yeah. I agree. And, and I hear that, you know, I do some mentoring as well and some work with different groups and, you know, people who are just starting to get into data science. And I think it's a developmental phase. There's, it's not a call out of any deficiency or anything like that, you know, that they're like, Hey, I, I want to know, you know, I want to have this crib sheet. You know, when I see this, I do these seven things. And, and that's, it's not the way it works. You know, that's not the way the most successful people operate in this field. Um, I, w I went to college a long time ago and, uh, you know, I got one of the first four year computer science degrees that you could get in the United States. And I went back to that college years later to help them build one of the first business analytics programs in America. And I asked them because I came from a really unusual background for computer science. At least I thought it was unusual. And, you know, the more I read, the more I find, the more it was not so unusual. But uh, I asked them, I said, where, what, where did you look for students like us back then? And they said, we generally look for people who had a background in auto mechanics or worked in machine shops. And I said, why? What's the connection there? And they said, tinkering, you know. People who worked on cars or worked in factories had to diagnose those problems and had to fix them themselves. And there was 
n number of solutions that would work and you had to find the one that was the, you know the the most optimal or the quickest or you know the most effective and they said that you know we found that people coming into computer science and now data science who had that tinkering curiosity toying mindset were very good at it is is there a future in computers <laughs> Yes, you read the story. Yeah, we do think there's a there's a future in those computers. Uh, but in all seriousness, where do you see the field of data science headed in the next two to five years? Oh, it's a great place. It's a great time to be here. You know, everybody, this is this is the this is where the action's at. There's no doubt about it. I, you know, often you hear people say, "Well, you know, gosh, it's all been invented. It's all been done." That's uh, not true. You know, we're, we're just getting to the uh, to the knee of the inflection point at this time. You know, if you're as well read as you are Harpreet or if you read the research that's out there, you know, uh, you know, McKinsey has been saying that, you know, the, the well-worn, well-understood market model from crossing the chasm, Jeffrey Moore and Tom Kippola and those guys, you know, the, the leaders are out there right now hiring every good data scientist and best data scientist they can get their hands on. Why are they doing that? Because they already know the advantage they're getting from artificial intelligence and data analytics. And those companies are accelerating away from the market and they're going to continue to do so. The, the, there's a great, a more, there's a larger number of companies in the early majority as opposed to the leaders. The early majority is now having the conversation of, should we get into data and analytics? Should we use AI? We have not proven it. We don't know if we really should do it, but the leaders already know and they're accelerating away. So the early majority are now trying to figure out, should we hire someone? Should we hire a leader? Should we read a book? Should we get McKinsey in here and do a study? So while they do that, they're still engaged in the process. And at some point, some part of those companies will figure it out and they will hire data scientists and, and they will do more with data and analytics and they will accelerate too. And then the late majority, they're skeptical. They're not really doing as much. And then when you get to the laggards, they're actively campaigning against data and analytics because they don't believe in it. So, you know, this is a great time to be in the field. You know, there's, there's a huge number of companies that do get it. There's even more companies that don't, but we don't have to worry about them. Uh, you know, there's opportunities for people to be chief analytics officers, chief data officers, uh, data scientists. The way we've set it up in our environment at CSL is that we have an entire and this is kudos to our, our HR department, you know, really good job from Elizabeth Walker and her team, where we've set up our career framework that you can come in as, let's just say data scientists, because, you know, any technical, you know, profession fits here, but let's just stay with data scientists. You can come in as an intern data scientist and be hired as a full-time junior data scientist, become a data scientist, a senior data scientist, and a principal data scientist all without having any managerial responsibilities whatsoever. You can keep climbing the ladder, growing your skills, getting greater compensation, and doing the things you love. So I know that's a long answer, but I think it's a great time to be a data scientist. So talk to us about your, your journey from individual contributor to where you are now, um, all that wonderful experience you've amassed and this wonderful depth of knowledge you have. What was your journey like going from, from an individual contributor to, to executive level? 
It's everybody's different. So, you know, Hey, listen to the story and, and take it and make it your own any way you can. Um, you know, I, I was a developer way back when I wrote assembler code and, and, you know, worked on a bunch of different systems and a variety of different areas. And, you know, it was early in my career that I immediately gravitated towards data and analytics, even before it was a field. You know, I would talk to people about the fact that the most important part of, of our mission, no matter where I worked, was to be a good steward and understand the data. And people would just look at me like I had six eyes. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, hey, we have to write these features to take this data from here and put it there and write a report. And, I, and I'm like, I don't really see that as being important. It's the data that's important. And when we started to see companies come out that were interested in data and analysis, I immediately, you know, went from being on the, you know, the big company developer end user side and immediately went over to the vendor side. And I got involved in data warehousing and, and you know, uh, and data mining and, and the early days of that and then business intelligence and then stat statistics and advanced analytics and AI. And I was always very interested in that kind of stuff. I was always pushing the envelope to try to be involved and use new techniques and technologies as they were being developed. So once I found that field, then I moved back and forth between being at a vendor, creating innovative technology, or like I am now, I'm at CSL, which is a biopharmaceutical company, building an analytics team. So I'm a little unusual in that respect in that I've done both. I've worked on the technology side and created products and technologies, and I've worked on the end user side implementing and using those technologies. And, and I've always you know, enjoyed the technology. I, I always say I'm a lapsed technologist. Um, and then I've always enjoyed the teams part of it as well. So. You know, it's been one of those that I've gone from being a developer to being an executive and, and I've taken kind of a, a curvy path to get there. And, and through that, that experience you, you've had and, and that journey you've taken, what would you say makes analytics teams, analytics projects, just all things related to analytics so unique? It's, uh, it's the ability to, you know, look at different phenomena through the lens of improvement. Uh, you know, you can look at anything and it can be improved. Now, when you talk to some of the people that are running those business units or running those functions, often they don't believe they can be improved. They think that they're optimized and they're the best they possibly can be. But I don't really think that's the case. I think everything can be improved. So, you know, it's one of those things that as an analytics professional, you're always you know, you're not really the owner of the business. You're kind of a, always a consultant, you know, whether people like that label or not. Um, I always liked being thought of as a consultant. You know, if I was a consultant or if I was working as an internal operator, I was consulting with people trying to help them understand how to get better. So it's always through the lens of how can I make this how can I improve this function? How can I get a better level of efficiency or of effectiveness? So that's how I look at it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, in your book, you talk about how it, it took you years to get your head wrapped around the fact that executives, not only did they not know what you're doing, but they didn't really understand it. But how do you recommend the first data scientist in the company handling a situation where you have an executive who's maybe read a couple of blog posts, they know the names of a couple of things, but they don't really understand or know 
machine learning. Mm-hmm. How, how would you how would you handle that situation where you have somebody who thinks they know your job and is trying to tell you what to do and not to do? Yeah, that's that's always fun when when you have the uh, the people who don't know what they're talking about trying to direct what you're doing. Uh, humility is always important. Uh, patience and taking a deep breath always works as well. Um, one of the things that I talk with everybody that I talk to about, you know, if they're in data science especially, is that you know when we sit around the table and we discuss you know problems and data data and things that we're working on, we can talk any way we want. We can talk math, we can talk algorithms, we can talk data, you know, we can just all out, you know, geek fest all day, all the time. And that's fun. But, you know, when we leave that room and we're walking down the hall and we encounter, let's just say it's the, you know, CFO and they want it, you know, she wants to talk to you about, you know, how AI is going to be able to help their area. You need to immediately switch into financial discussion. You need to use the language she understands. You need to talk about, you know, the cadence and the terms and the measurement and the things that connect with her. You can't, you can't get anybody to understand what you do by talking in your language, talking in our language. You need to talk in their language is the first thing. And then secondly, the thing that always works, and my wife taught me this over 26 years we've been married. She's a career development coach. I am her longest project, that's for sure. And the one thing that she taught me and I finally, finally got is that questions are your friends. So, you know, when you have someone who is really giving it to you about how you should do your job, just ask them questions. You know, hey, that's great. I'm really excited that you're interested in this area. And do you understand, you know, I want to understand your views on how we can improve you know, cycle time efficiency or how we can make more money in this area or how can we increase increase gross margins in Western Europe? So you just start asking a bunch of questions and I can guarantee you by the third question, they're going to leave you alone because they're going to realize, I really don't know how to talk to this person. I really don't want to get into this conversation and more than likely they hired you because you're a really smart guy anyway. So they don't really want to do your job they just want to have a conversation about it. So often we will get a little defensive thinking that people are trying to tell us what, what to do. Really, they're just excited. You know, they just want to talk to you for the most part. And questions will always end that conversation in a way that you both feel good about it. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I was uh, asking for a friend again, so he'll appreciate <laughs> that. So uh, I have a philosophy that as a data scientist, you should learn to build and learn to sell. Uh, being able to do both is you know, an ultimate superpower. When you're the startup founder of a data science team, how much of your job is selling? Most of it. You know, you're, uh, a lot of people in our field think, oh, you know, I'm here to build things. I don't have to sell anything. Uh, that's not really the case. You know, I've, I've been the CEO of seven different startups. I've, you know, worked in, in Dell and IBM and other large organizations. And there's always someone that holds the budget, yeah, you know, above you. Uh, that's making a decision on how much budget to give you and how to support your function and whether you're going to grow or someone else is going to grow or something like that. So you do, and there's a fair amount of it in the book, as you know, uh, about how to connect with uh, C-level executives, senior 
executive senior managers, you know, in understanding their viewpoint and, and convincing them that your organization and the things you do are, are the best bet for that, that pot of money. So I would say, you know, my job is probably 60% selling at this point. The first year that I was here it was probably 80% selling. You know, now I've got a number of people who understand what my team does and what we can do. I don't need to sell them anymore. They, they just want us to work on projects for their areas. So, you know, as, as you go, you know, as, as the people that are listening to this podcast go through your career and you move from being an individual contributor to a leader of people, to a leader of functions, to a leader of multiple functions, as you go up that ladder, you're going to have to do more and more of that, if you don't like to call it selling, uh, more and more of that connecting and convincing. Do you have any uh, resources on how we can get better at that? Um, I don't know you talk about it in your book as well. Um, any any maybe courses or, or books that you recommend? You know, anything that, that helps you communicate better, that's usually the, the foundation of all of it. You know, I, I, I consult with Oklahoma State University, University of Texas at Austin, University of Michigan, uh, University of Illinois, on all their analytics programs. And the one thing that I have told all of them, and I'm sure they're sick of me saying it, is that you don't have enough communications in your programs. You are not teaching people either verbal or written or presentation communications well enough. And, you know, starting there, you know, if you can't stand in front of a group of people, uh, C-level executives, senior managers, whatever it is, and with confidence, get your point across quickly and easily and convincingly, then that's where your Achilles heel really is. You know, you need to start there. And then after that, you know, you can take all sorts of classes on. We just at CSL had our entire, entire data science team go through a presentation skills class. And I had taken it before and I didn't join the class. And I think the team was very happy for that. They were kind of surprised in the beginning, but you know, they all had to write presentations. They had to give presentations and they all benefited from it. Then after that, we went through interesting enough. This is kind of, you know, people say, what are you talking about? We also took them through visualization training, you know, how to build compelling visualizations. Because what we found was we could build really cool and interesting models that were incredibly impactful. But if the visualizations weren't engaging, then users didn't use it. So, you know, you have to communicate, you know, written verbal presentation. You have to take your, your results and turn them into something people are interested in looking at or engaging with. And then, you know, whatever, you know, there's a million classes out there and, and you know, persuasion or communication or connecting or social IQ or emotional intelligence. You know, there's lots of people that talk about this stuff now. Um, once you get your communications to the point where you feel you're good, you know, work on your emotional intelligence because that's one area that we as data scientists generally need uh, improvement on. It's one of my favorite areas to just study up on and get better. Like, I mean, I often say that being a data scientist is like the least interesting part about who I am. It's just what I happen to do for work. I thoroughly enjoy it, but, um, but yeah, I love learning about how to deal with people and, and human psychology. A couple of books that I found really helpful was uh, Daniel Pink, To Sell is Human. Um, there's another one, The Art of Selling Anything. And then even just this book that I keep right here at hand whenever I need it. It's just 
business writing for for dummies. There you go. It's, it's, it's right there. Crucial stuff. Well, well, uh, well, earmarked there. Yeah, yeah. I got everything uh, nicely color coded when uh, when I need to get to it. So, if we're the first data scientists in an organization, how can we ensure that we're building or at least cultivating a culture for analytics to thrive? You know, so one of the, it's a great question. One of the things that we is, is, you know, if you're the first and only data scientist in the organization, you know, as I said, you know, being successful is important. It, you know, it can't be overstated. We've talked about it. We're going to talk about it again. You know, pick projects that you know you can win at, pick projects that the company cares about, and then shout how successful you were communicate that, you know, hey, we, we got a win here and this is how it works. And then, you know, lay out your case for why you shouldn't be the only data scientist, that you, it should be a function. It should be something that serves the greater good. Uh, so I think early success and, and high probability of, of being successful is important. And, and that doesn't come by chance. That comes by design. You know, that comes out of the projects you pick, the data you work on, the people people you connect with, you know, everything that you're doing, you know, as that lone data scientist in your organization is you're almost like a Mason, you know, you're setting the, the foundation that all the other data scientists and the functions in this, in the center of excellence will be built on. So if you're building on a swampy ground, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to work. You know, you need to build on bedrock. So you want to be, you know, in it to win it and engaged and doing good work and then talking to people about what you did. So it's definitely like the data scientist's responsibility to help make that culture mm-hmm. one that they can thrive in. Yes, absolutely. Because the organization doesn't know. You know, you can't expect the CFO or the CIO or the CEO to, to know what you or the future data science function is going to need. They just don't know. They haven't been exposed to it. It's like, you know, asking someone to speak Hindi when all they speak is English. They can't do it. It's just they don't know what's going on. So um, it's, be, it's, it's incumbent on you and it behooves you as the first person, you know, to build a function that's going to be repeatable and extensible and scalable. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Next few questions I have going to dig a little bit deeper on the, you know, creative, iterative aspect of data science and how it contrasts with more of that factory kind of uh, production kind of system, process oriented system. How can we balance then this creative, iterative, unpredictable process of analytics discovery with those environments that have these operational or you know, production process oriented uh, characteristics? Well, the, the, the way I think of it is that, you know, we have the data scientists who are doing the, the model building, the creativity side of it, the EDA and, and those kind of things. But once you get through that, you know, then you're building a model that you're going to, you know, you're going to test and validate and prove that it works. And really at that point, you know, your work is here is done. Uh, you know, one way to say it, you know, because you're really then becoming an advisor. You know, the, the, the work of putting this, the, the models and the applications into production systems are, are going to be, you know, you as an advisor, then there's going to be the subject matter expert who's going to understand what the business result really should look like. And then the person who's going to be primary in that function is IT. You know, they're going to have to understand that, let's say that this is a, you know, a, um, a model that's going into 
predict where to, to put in the next facility. Well, that needs to go into the system where people make decisions about where they're going to buy land and, and make decisions about new factories or new retail stores or something like that. And the IT people are generally the ones that know that. So you're going to go in, you're going to talk about the screen real estate, you know, where the end users are going to see the results. You're going to talk about the operational systems and how they operate and what the cadence of those operations are. And you're going to talk about how that entire application or those models are going to be inserted in there. You're going to give them all the inputs and the outputs and, and you know, the contingencies and the constraints. And they're going to build it. So, you know, it, it really isn't that the data scientists have to get their hands dirty in that kind of work because they're not good at it. They don't know what to do. Uh, you know, you become an advisor. So, you know, you want to make friends with all those people because you're going to be working through some interesting and possibly tense situations. But, you know, that's the way it works. And Matt, how have you seen data science play out in like sprint environments where you're working in sprints? What's your experience with that? How can we how can we do our work in that kind of an environment or system? Uh, I think you're referring to agile, and, yes. you know, for the most part. Uh, um, you know, unabashedly, I'm not a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I've said it many times. I'll continue to say it. I don't like agile. I don't use agile. Uh, you know, I think agile forces people to do things. I think agile is great if you're actually developing very linear features. You know, okay, you needed to write 10 lines of code for this feature. Uh, you wrote five of them. Why didn't you get the 10, you know, the six through 10 done? When are you going to get six through 10 done? Okay, fine. You know, and, and that works okay for those environments. That's not the environment we're in in data science. You know, that would work in the later parts of the cycle where we're talking about where it's turned into an I. IT integration projects, you can certainly use Agile there. And those kind of environments, most of the people that are there accept that and understand it and, and find it, you know, comforting that they've got daily checkpoints and daily standups and stuff like that. We actually tried it, uh, you know, early in the COVID crisis to see how it worked for our team. I was pretty sure that it wouldn't, wouldn't work well. And, you know, we were about four months into it doing, you know, daily standups. I guess it was about two months into it, it seemed like four months. And, you know, and I, I just stopped one of the meetings and I just asked the team, I said, how does this feel to you? How does these, how do these meetings, you know, how are they working? And I think someone said, well, it's, it feels to me like I'm pulling my fingernails off every day. And I'm like, okay, great. So, you know, we immediately went to three days a week and then we went to two days a week and we went to back to our weekly meetings. You know, it was one of those things that we did it because we had to show that we were dedicated to the cause, but it didn't improve our productivity. It didn't improve our models. It didn't get anything done any faster than it would have been the other way. Uh, So I don't think agile, um, fits very well on top of a data science team. I never use the word agile. I actually describe our team as being very nimble. I like that. I like that word, nimble. Um, you talked about in your book as well, this concept of linear and non-linear thinking. You kind of touched on it just now as well. How can we leverage this understanding to set our analytics teams up for success? Yeah, there's, uh, you, you, you have to realize that you know, if you are dealing with a linear thinker or a non-linear thinker, you will not change the way they think. So if you're on some quest to convert someone to the way you think, you will fail. 
That is not the way it works. You know, you need to understand where people are coming from and you need to meet them where they are. And if, if someone is a linear thinker and you're a nonlinear thinker, then you need to take a deep breath, center yourself and work with them to understand that they only see it in the sense of one, two, three, four, five. They don't see it like, you know, I get the sense you're probably a nonlinear thinker. I'm a nonlinear thinker. I often go from A to Q, you know, and, and my data science team laughs about it all the time because it's like, oh, well, John just skipped 32 steps, you know, uh, you know, and that's just the way I am and I'm not going to change. But I can understand where other people are coming from and I can I can relate to what they're doing and I can change how I communicate so I can have a meeting of the minds. It's not the way I like to operate and it's not my preferred mode, but I know I have to do it, especially when you're working, you know, you're on the, you know, the production side of someone who works in a factory who's a process engineer, their whole life is process. You know, to, to not go down a process is to invalidate their reason for being, you know, so we can actually be really upsetting to people and not realize it. You know, I, I've seen that a few times where, you know, I've gotten up and I've been in the moment, I've been in the flow, I've been all, you know, just all about it. And I'd leave the meeting and some people come up and they're just really upset. And, and I'm like, why? What happened? And they're like, you just didn't follow the process. You were all over the place. Like, yeah, that's kind of what happens when I get into the flow state. So you just need to understand who those people are and where they're coming from and, and you know, be someone who can shift gears and get into their world and make sure that you can connect with them. And it's not necessarily like one way is better than the other for, for data science teams, right? No. It's a matter of working, working together. No, no, it's, there's, there's no judgment there. They're not at all. It's just, I'm a nonlinear thinker. That's all there is to it. And my wife is a nonlinear thinker. So when we sit and talk, it's, we're all over the place. We're like BBs in a tin can. We bounce all over, you know, process people are fantastic. You know, we need process oriented people to set things up in a way that it's controlled and it works and it works every time. You know, there, there are just some processes that lives depend on it. So you don't really want me designing that kind of process. Speaking of lines and linearity, one place you'll see a lot of that is in like an org chart. In your experience, where does it make sense to house a data or analytics teams? I've seen them anywhere from IT to finance to products to ops teams. Where do you think it makes most sense to put a data science team? It's a great question, uh, you know, and it's something that, you know, given my 37 years of experience, I've seen almost every permutation known to man, uh, and I come down on this, and I'm, I'm, this is where I come down on this, and I'm pretty, I feel pretty strongly about it. The data science leader, whether it's a chief data officer, or chief analytics officer, whoever leads that function, should actually report to the CEO. And if they can't report to the CEO, they should report to the COO. And if they end up reporting to a VP or a, a line of business function, vice president or something like that, that's usually, a, that's usually suboptimal. And why do I say that? You know, because, you know, as a data scientist and a data science leader, you need to have the parity in the organization. You need to have the... Uh, sponsorship from your management to go anywhere in the organization and be able to recommend new solutions to those groups. So, you know, if you end up, and a lot of people are here, and I'm not judging anyone for where they report into, but I know what 
happens, and I've seen it happen over and over again, that over time, the data science team, let's say that you work for the CFO, um, you know, and the data science team has been working on supply chain issues and manufacturing and pricing and all sorts of different things. But over time, your group, the data science team is going to end up just working on finance projects and you will be measured just like every other piece of the finance organization. And that's not the best way to measure a data science team. You need to have your independence from the functional groups. You know, if you end up working for the CIO, you're going to end up working on IT projects. That's just the way it is because you people, uh, you know, you can't reprogram people. You know, a CIO has probably been in the IT function for 25, 30 years. That's the way they think, and they think they are doing the right thing by having the data science team work on server optimization or cyber, something like that. But I can guarantee you most data science teams don't go in wanting to be pigeonholed into doing, you know, either finance or IT applications. They're there, you know, for the bigger picture. They want to work on things that are going to have a strategic impact. And I'm not saying that, you know, working on applications in finance or IT are not important. They are. But that's not what a data science team wants just to do all the time. What would you say are some unreasonable expectations that executives and management have of these startup data science teams? Oh, it, often it's the, uh, the you know, unreasonable expectation of time. You know, if you hire someone, let's just say, you know, you hire someone in, I work in a biopharmaceutical company, let's use that as an example. You hire people into your biopharmaceutical company who are artisanal data scientists, but have never worked in biopharmaceuticals. They've worked in finance or raw technology or transportation or utilities or something like that, they need time to learn the business. So you can't just drop someone in and say, Hey, in two weeks, I want a, an application that predicts, you know, which is going to be the next COVID vaccine. It doesn't work like that. You know, they can be productive and they can certainly network around and learn the organization and meet people. But I say that, you know, you, you really shouldn't expect a data scientist to really produce you know good solid results for about six months you know they got to learn the organization they got to know where their desk is they got to figure out they got to set up their stack you know they got to learn where the data the data is and access the data there's lots of things that people have to figure out so they usually the time expectation is one that's you know pretty consistently unreasonable um, another one is asking people to do the impossible because you don't know what is possible or impossible uh, you know, they'll ask the data science team to predict something that is, there's no data, you know, you can't predict it. If it doesn't, there's no data, it just doesn't exist. Uh, you know, and, and it's very hard for people outside of data science to know what is possible and what's not possible. So I think it's usually time expectations and then production of results or predicting phenomena. Those are usually the two big ones, the two big problems that I see. You know, we had a situation at, at CSL probably about six months into my tenure. He was frustrated. 
you know, not with us. He was just frustrated. He had a, a challenge that was given to him um, by the organization. It was in the research and development area. And he's like, I'm, I'm really just at my wits end. I don't know what to do and I can't figure this out. And what he was tasked with doing was to look at the entire universe of pharmaceutical research to try to figure out the most important citations or sources for information about a certain therapeutic area. And I talked to him for a little bit and then I said, well, give me a minute. And, and I went and talked to one of the data scientists and I said, can I call you back in about a half hour? So I called him back and talked to him some more and, and I said, okay, you know, I, I'm going to send you an email and I want you to fill out everything I'm asking you for. And he did. And I gave it to a data scientist. And the next day we had set up, you know, we had written a few lines of, of code and, you know, went out and did some crawling on PubMed and, and various places. And we came back and we had given him a taxonomy. You know, here are the 10 most important resources you could have. Here are the next 100 most important. Here's the next thousand. Here's the most next 10,000. And he looked at us like we were we were walking on water. For him, that problem was insolvable. But for us, it was like two hours, you know. So people don't know, you know, they just don't know what they're asking for. And you have to be the person that listens very carefully and says, oh, that's, I'll have that to you this afternoon. And, and people are very grateful. Or a little harder to deliver is that's not possible. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. So let's do a last formal question before we jump into a random round. It is 100 years in the future, the year 2120. What do you want to be remembered for? Oh, that's an interesting question. I didn't think that's where you were going. <laughs> uh, you know, and anybody asks me that, I, I always want to be remembered for being a good father, a good husband, and a technology, a technology leader that actually made the data science field better. Definitely have, man. Your books have been amazing. I really enjoyed going through this one. I'm looking forward to uh, to the next one and have me back on the show when that time comes. So let's jump into a random round here. If you were to write a fiction novel, what would it be about? What would you title it? Ooh, a fiction novel. Um, I really love uh, Quentin Tarantino's couple movies, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and then... Um, uh, inglorious bastards where he's taking history and changing the story. So I would probably, I would probably write something about the history of rocketry and change, you know, the exploration of Mars or something like that. And I don't really know what the title would be, but that's what I would write about. When do you think the first video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube will happen? And what will that video be about? <laughs> It'll probably happen in the next year or two, and it'll probably be something ridiculous like a kitten stuck in a tube or, you know, a, a baby pig kissing a cat or something like that. I, I don't, I, I'm, that's my guess. What are you currently most excited about or what are you currently exploring? Uh, I'm really excited about the future of data. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that's going to be my next book. Uh, there's some really intriguing developments out of Europe. We're all, I think we're all aware of GDPR uh, and what that did to privacy around the world. There's a new directive coming out of Europe about data commons and, uh, you know, in, in paying every European citizen a data dividend based on their data. I think that the control of our own data is very fascinating and really exciting. 
what are you currently reading or what book do you recommend? Well, let's see. I have some books here that, uh, you know, are just off, off the, 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 the field. Um, I like Victor Frankl's Man's Search, Man's Search for Meaning. Not a very light book, but something that I really enjoy reading. Um, my son gave me this one, String Theory, mm. about tennis. Uh, and then uh, this is a book my wife gave me, which I'm really enjoying. Uh, excuse me? Think Like a Rocket Scientist. Nice, nice. Yeah, I was actually, I was listening to uh, Man Search for Meaning on Audible um, a couple of days ago. Yeah, it's, it's a heavy, it's a heavy book, man. Yeah. Whenever you start feeling like, you know, your, your life is tough, pick that one up and read 10 pages and you put it into perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read a lot of stoic philosophy as well. And so there's oh, a, lot yeah. that, a lot of that present in man's yeah, as well. Ryan holiday. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I read his book about Marcus Aurelius and then there's another one that I want to get. I think it's called daily stoics or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Daily stoic. Um, I've got a couple of episodes on my podcast. Um, one is an introduction to stoicism. And then I recently interviewed Donald Robertson who wrote the book, how to think like a Roman emperor that should be nice. coming out in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, speaking of Ryan holiday, I, I just recently interviewed his mentor, Robert green. Um, so that oh, was, nice. yeah, that was, that was a huge, Huge moment for me because a uh, big fan of his books. What song do you have on repeat? <laughs> um, there's a there's a um, there's a, a a guy named um, John Astley, not Rick Astley, and uh, I don't remember the name of the song, but it's about walking around and enjoying life, but always coming home, and you know just being satisfied with, with life. So that I've been listening to that a lot. And then I've been playing on vinyl. Uh, it's hard to kick against the pricks by Johnny cash. I have to look both of those up. We're going <laughs> to, we're going to jump into a random question generator for a few questions here. What talent would you show off in a talent show? Ultimate Frisbee. Oh, I love ultimate Frisbee. I, I miss playing that so much. Yeah. In your group of, of friends, what role do you play? Uh, smart Alec. What's your go-to dance move? You don't have one. <laughs> pancakes or waffles? Ooh, pancakes. Let's do one more. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? Oh, this is a great one. Have you ever seen or heard of the movie called The Abyss? Oh, that's an old one, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For years for years, my friends and I watched it. And then we would always rate uh, the horrible movies we've seen as nothing could be as bad as the abyss. It's the worst movie ever made. So it was like, how close to the abyss is this movie? So that's, we, we played that for decades. How can people connect with you and where can they find you online? Uh, LinkedIn is the best place uh, to find me. John Thompson, uh, fairly, easy to find me. John K. Thompson. I don't think that actually works on LinkedIn, but it's John Thompson with a P. And, uh, you know, I, I post to LinkedIn frequently and I always double post to LinkedIn and Twitter, but I rarely ever go to Twitter. So LinkedIn is the best place. I'll definitely include a link to your profile there in the show notes. John, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come onto the show today. I really appreciate having you here. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it, Harpreet. 